This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. Our recovery doesn't happen after the fire trucks leave and the, and the emergency management uh, folks are gone and the, and the tape, you know, the yellow tape is gone. There's this whole process of recovery that is devastating for most people. Welcome to Ian Weekly, and we have an exciting show for you guys here today. We're going to start with breaking news. Hurricane update. Flash flood warning is in effect in Charleston, South Carolina this afternoon as Irma, which was this morning, Monday, the September 11th, was downgraded to a tropical storm, which batters the south and with torrential rain and dangerous storm surges. One of the issues that we're really concerned about right now is will the high tide and the storm surge come together, which will devastate parts of uh, Florida, including Miami. So far, the storm has killed 37 people in the Caribbean and at least six people in Florida. Um, This is what we have reported right now, and it's left nearly 6 million Floridians without any power. As of this afternoon, Irma was about 55 miles east of Tallahassee, Florida, moving in a north-northeast at 17 miles an hour with sustained winds of 60 miles an hour. A tornado watch across parts of Georgia and South Carolina coast, including Savannah and Charleston, has been extended into Tuesday. Irma could also bring up to 50 to 60 miles an hour and uh, flooding coast in in, in Atlanta uh, tonight, which is Monday with the re- time of this recording. So Monday morning, the water raced through the streets of Jacksonville, Florida, where a second storm surge was reported to exceed the previous record set by Hurricane Dora in 1964. So this is definitely a record-setting storm. The interesting part about this storm as well is that it's heading into Georgia, and this is the first time, according to some news reports, that Georgia's had a hurricane and or tropical depression hitting up in there. And I know parts of Alabama are also on the watch as well. In the Florida Keys, uh, which remains cut off from the mainland, uh, there's high anxiety and there's little fuel very little electricity, if any, um, and there's no running water, or a little running water for that matter. Irma made landfall in the Florida Keys on Sunday morning as a Category 4 hurricane, bringing 130 miles an hour winds and storm surges of 10 feet, which is the first Category 4 landfall in Florida since 2004. The Keys were under mandatory evacuation orders as Irma neared, but not everyone left. According to the Miami Herald, Florida Director of Emergency Management, Brian Kuhn estimates there's about 10,000 people remained on the Keys during the storm, adding it's hard to communicate with those that are left there. Roman Gasky, the administrator for Marone County, which includes the Keys, said, unfortunately, you start to hear stories of folks that stay in the houses that shouldn't have. And so we hear folks that are, that are stayed on boats. And if you look at the, the video that's going on, there's boats all over the place. And I don't think that was a really wise decision. So Marone County officials said in a statement this morning that it is not safe to return to the Keys. Repeat, it's not safe to return to the Keys. So the wind may have stopped blowing, but for the most of the Florida Keys, there's no fuel, electricity, running water, or cell service. So for many people, supplies are running low and anxiety is running high in the official statement from the from the Monroe County officials. So if you take a look at the video that's out there, you'll see just down trees and power lines and everything. It is very unsafe. So those of you that are uh, responding to this event, please stay safe, guys and gals. You, you know, uh, please keep your head on a swivel and make sure you're not uh, stepping into anything that's uh, going to hurt you. Uh, We want you all to come back home uh, to your families and friends uh, at the end of this uh, response. That's it with Miami. Let's go back to Houston a little bit. We have an interview coming up with the Tool Bank, and it's uh, Matt Wallenek from the Tool Bank is going to be talking about what they're doing right now in Houston and the greater Texas area that was affected by these storms um, and the county that he's specifically working in and uh, how what their plans are as far as responding to Irma if they can. I got Matt here with me from the Tool Bank, which is a really kind of a cool organization. And later on, most likely in our October time here, uh, we're going to get Matt back on uh, with a conversation about exactly what Tool Bank is and what they're all about. But he is on the ground in Texas, and I just wanted to touch base with him and, and kind of get a feel for what's going on with the people and the recovery efforts that are going on in Texas. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about Irma. So Matt, go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, tell me what you guys are doing. Yeah, so I'm Matt Walensiak. I'm the executive director of Toolbank Disaster Services. 
Coolbank has nine warehouses across the U.S., one of which happens to be in Houston. So our Houston community tool bank, thankfully, was untouched by the storm. And just days after the storm had passed and the water started to recede, uh, we started to lend tools to the organizations that were coming in to assist with the cleanup efforts, both local and national outpouring of, of volunteers and organizations that came in to help. Our goal is really to equip these groups uh, with the tools that they need so that they can respond in a more timely fashion and, and also have the proper PPE for all their volunteers so that they can stay safe. In addition to our warehouse in Houston, we do have a 53-foot tractor trailer, which we call our mobile unit. It's pretty much just a warehouse on wheels, specifically designed for disaster response and recovery. So all the tools can be used for muck and gut and demolition and debris removal, as well as personal protection equipment as well. So the trailer is down in Aransas, Texas, Aransas Pass, Texas, at the Civic Center, which is about 215 miles south of uh, Houston, Texas. So our, our goal is to equip all of the organizations between Aransas Pass and Houston with tools for their volunteers. That is really cool stuff right there. I mean, you think about being destroyed with a hurricane coming in or with like large-scale earthquake or tornado or whatever, and you guys are able to come in and, and equip people with those tools in a timely manner. And I think that's a really great uh, concept. So what's it feel like in Texas right now? What's Houston looking like? I mean, how, how are the people? How's the recovery? How's that going? And then are you guys going to be maybe going to Irma or, or not? Yeah, so the recovery and response efforts in, in Texas are, are definitely going strong. In Houston, they got a lot of immediate attention, which has been great, and volunteers are definitely coming in. And we've almost emptied out our entire warehouse of tools there for those groups that are responding <laughs> in the greater Houston area. That's awesome. Which, on yeah, on one hand it is. It's, it's really awesome. Uh, we're excited to kind of have that impact. Between the warehouse and the trailer, I think it's been roughly $250,000 worth of tools that we've lent out free of charge to these groups. So it's definitely going really well. Down in Aransas Pass, same thing. I mean, we have a lot of national partners, but a lot of local groups are coming out, churches, schools, fire departments, neighboring fire departments have all come out to help. So it's, it's, been, it's been a great response so far. Unfortunately, Irma is kind of making its own impact, and, and we're really trying to figure out how we can continue to assist here, but then also go and assist in Florida and those communities being impacted by Irma. So we do have another warehouse in Atlanta, Georgia, which we're hoping is also going to go unaffected by the disaster. But we only have the one trailer. So our, our goal is to raise some funds so that we can get a second trailer, outfit it, and fill it up with as many tools as we can, and then bring it into some of the, the most impacted communities in Florida so that we can assist those volunteers as well. If somebody was inclined to donate to you guys, how could they get a hold of you? So our website is toolbank.org. T-O-O-L-B-A-N-K.org. It has our contact information for Toolbank Disaster Services, as well as all of our affiliate contact information. So our affiliates and TDS all take used and, and new tools that people are looking to donate, as well uh, as, as cash donations. And then if they want to reach me directly, uh, it's just Matt, M-A-T-T, at toolbank.org. Great. And I'll make sure that I put that information down and a clickable link in the show notes. Uh, so... You know, everybody can, if you don't have a pencil with you, you can go ahead and, and uh, do that. What's it look like as far as the time that you guys are going to be on the ground there in Texas? I mean, I, I know that we're talking a lot of devastation and possibly months into years of, of recovery. What's it look like for you guys for that? It's a unique storm, as with every hurricane. In Aransas Pass, it was really, it, it looks almost like several tornadoes came through the area. So it's, it's a lot of wind damage compared to in Houston, it's mostly water damage. Mm -hmm. The trailer is, is mostly equipped with just tools for the initial response phase. So we'll be here at least through the end of the year, probably into early 2018, and then they'll slowly transition into recovery, where Houston Tool Bank both has tools for response and recovery. So, I mean, we're, we're looking for years to come that we're, we're hoping to play an integral part of the response and recovery phase in Texas. What's the damage look like from the ground? I mean, I know what we see here on the news uh, and I've talked to a few people that have were impacted by that. But what's it like when you're walking through uh, the areas? I mean, what's what's the mood of the people? Uh, what's the, the what are the buildings are like? What what's what's going on there on the ground? Yeah. So the county I'm in, just about every single building that we've seen had some sort of damage to it. There were several trees on on every piece of property down here. 
that were either uprooted or, or cracked and fell over. A lot of them, then a lot of them impacting the homes that were on those properties or the buildings that were on those properties. So it, it, it's definitely going to be a, a lot of chainsaw work for these volunteers and, and quite some time to get rid of some of that debris. But surprisingly, I mean, all of the homeowners here are in good spirits. They're really pulling together as a community. Neighboring counties and towns and communities are all coming in and, and helping out as much as they can. So it's, it's definitely a close-knit group of people. And, and they really invited us in as family, been having daily conversations with the police chief here, and they look at us as if we've been here the entire time. So it's, it's been a great experience for us. How's the water and electricity situation uh, down there? Only part of the community has water. We, we got water and electricity a few days ago, but we still have several homeowners that are, are coming up and asking us if we know when uh, water will be turned on or electricity will be turned on. So I know that several people are still without. There's some organizations down here that are, are, are bringing in potable water and several pallets of bottled water that are at different distribution centers for all the homeowners. But still, uh, as far as taking showers and, and stuff like that, for some people, that's still a challenge. Right. Hygiene's always a, an issue after something like this. And speaking of that, how is it with the food and refrigeration, that type of thing? Has there been issues with that down there? Or uh, has everybody been able to kind of mitigate that problem or... How's that look? They're bringing in ice from somewhere. <laughs> we don't <laughs> we don't know where it's coming, but it, it, it comes in every day by the truckload. So as far as refrigeration, if, if people don't have power, there's definitely lots of coolers and lots of ice down here. Uh, coolers are actually one of the items that we do lend. So we don't just lend tools. Uh, we do have tents and chairs and tables and coolers and stuff like that uh, that we lend out to the, the organizations in the communities. There's a couple of groups down here, Mercy Chefs for one, uh, that have been cooking us meals two, three times a day. So that's been great, uh, getting a home-cooked meal every day. Uh, you don't always see that on deployment. And then, again, just the, the community in general, every other street, there's somebody that has a barbecue going, and, and they're cooking burgers or hot dogs and just handing out to volunteers and to their neighbors. So we're being well-fed. Right. That's Texas, so you have to have barbecue, right? That's kind of the rule, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it it kind of goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Well, that's awesome. All right, Matt. Well, I know you're really busy. I don't want to take too much more of your time. And everybody who would like to hear more about uh, the Tool Bank, we will be doing a full featured episode with them. Uh, but Matt has to get back to work and doing the good stuff down there. So Matt, stay safe. If you have any uh, needs or anything, feel free to reach out to us. And for those of you that are looking to donate to organizations, Tool Bank is one of the good ones to do. Uh, and uh, again, the link to his website and to Matt's contact information will be down in the show notes. So go ahead and take a look. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And, and again, stay safe and have a great day. with Vince Davis. He's an author and a prolific speaker, and he's been was named one of the three emergency managers you should follow on LinkedIn by Basecamp Connect. And the book that he authored, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is the Native Family Disaster Preparedness Handbook. And I'm really excited about having Vince on here today with me. It's an honor to have you here, Vince. So Vince, just real quick, how did you get involved in emergency management and disaster response? And then wrapped it up with how did you decide to write the book, the Native Family Disaster Preparedness Handbook? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. Emergencies happen. Whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. 3.15 and 3.14, there is at least one person that's been shot. Somebody is still shooting inside. 4.53, I have a party shot here. I need to rescue hot. Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed TAC They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to, and managing large-scale incidents, HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff at High Speed TACMED will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed TACMED today at 
805-419-0024. Again, that's 805-419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Bring it up, bodies now. Get someone to the back as soon as you can. Rescue personnel. I got at least three to seven hits. Today, I'm with Vince Davis. He's an author and a prolific speaker, and he's been was named one of the three emergency managers you should follow on LinkedIn by Basecamp Connect. And the book that he authored, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is the Native Family Disaster Preparedness Handbook. And I'm really excited about having Vince on here today with me. It's an honor to have you here, Vince. So Vince, just real quick, how did you get involved in emergency management and disaster response? And then wrapped it up with how did you decide to write the book, the Native Family Disaster Preparedness Handbook? Todd, thank you for having me this morning. I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, my my real start management came after spending a, uh, a majority of my career in telecommunications. And after 9-11, uh, after the 9-11 terror attacks, the company I was working for went out of business uh, because we were supplying uh, services to one of the airlines. And so uh, I had to reinvent my career, basically. And during that time, I'd spent most, much of my career in the Illinois Army National Guard as a public information officer. So uh, I took that experience and I wound up getting a position at FEMA as an external affairs officer where I served uh, community relations and external affairs on 11 federal disasters. And then from there, went to a series of careers in the field of emergency management, including uh, emergency preparedness manager for the Chicago area Red Cross, part of the regional catastrophic planning team for FEMA, and, uh, and then in the, into the private sector where I was an emergency manager for Walgreens and for uh, Sony Corporation. So I got involved with the Native community through a contact that I made at a preparedness fair at Sony, a gentleman by the name of Sean Scott, who wrote a book called The Red Guide to Disaster Recovery. Uh, Sean had also written a Native American version and Spanish version of his book. And through those contacts, he had been requested by Native public media to help them put together some uh, guidance and training materials for Native broadcasters, specifically around disaster. Well, Sean, uh, that not being his, his forte in being a restoration expert, actually recommended me to Native media to write that, that content. So I wound up working with Native public media to write a uh, emergency communication guidebook for the 58 radio and television stations that operate in Indian country. So as a result of that and some discussions that I had with some of the stakeholders in, in doing that work, we started to kick around some ideas about how best to communicate with Native families in disasters. One of the things that you may not be aware of, Todd, is that uh, less than 10% of uh, people living on tribal land have access to the Internet. So when you tell people to go to the internet and find all this great information that's out there about disasters and disaster preparedness, that's really not a possibility for 90% of the folks living in Indian country. Wow. That's uh, not only just the whole, for them to do their own research, but we rely upon the internet and cell phones and stuff like that as emergency managers a lot for communications during a disaster. So that's that has to be a challenge in its, in its own right. Certainly. So one of the big challenges that we had going into uh, creating the book was uh, how do we reach the population in a way that's going to be meaningful and effective to them. We wanted to keep the language fairly straightforward. Uh, we didn't want to try to create a emergency management manual. This is really a guide for families on how they should prepare. And that's one of the things that as emergency managers in general, again, you know, less than 1% of the population is really prepared uh, for any catastrophic emergency. And we're talking in, in the suburban and urban areas, such as like, you know, Orange County, California, Cal, uh, you know, LA, California, that type of stuff. How do you go about telling Native Americans that this is something that they should invest their time and, and money into when in some cases, poverty is such a, such an issue on the reservations? Sure, that's a great question, Todd. And, and working with the stakeholders within the Native community, what I, two things I found very interesting. Uh, the Native community has a very connected network of people in public health, Native health, human services, and in the reservation communities. There are 567 
sovereign Indian tribes, recognized tribes, federally recognized tribes in the United States. And while they're not all individually connected to one another necessarily, they are connected through those larger networks. So one of the uh, applications that we applied when we started to create the handbook was the, the fact that as emergency managers, we often sort of get full of our own press, if you will, <laughs> and we start dictating to people rather than reaching them where they are. So our goal with the, with the Emergency Disaster Handbook for Native Americans was to get the book into the hands of the people who are actually going to use it. And so we came up with a marketing plan, if you will, to do that through existing Native organizations, including the uh, National Tribal Emergency Management Council, which oversees and, and works with more than 270 of the tribes in the United States. Do you see a greater sense of community on the tribal lands than, say, you know, in suburbia? That's a great question. One of the things that I've been involved in for a number of years is, of course, CERT. And I've written a number of articles about, you know, community emergency response teams and, and how, in many cases, they're, they're ineffective in certain areas, such as large urban areas. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, here in Chicago, where I live, there are about 3.2 million people in the city, and they have a CERT program, but there's only less than 300 people involved in CERT. Wow. And the reason for that is that the communities in, in urban areas, in heavily populated urban areas, are not as connected as they are in suburban and rural communities. That is, the people don't know their neighbors. They don't really associate with the local uh, fire departments, police departments, public safety people in a way that people do in suburbia. Right. So the same applies to the Native American uh, community. What I found in working with them is that they're very much uh, connected on a tribal level, and it's a matter of tailoring the resources so that they are socially relevant to what their concerns and their needs are. For example, on a reservation, you may have 300 people or 400 people spread out over a very big geographic area, and those folks communicate through things like amateur radio, and, and, and native public radio, that's how they get their information. So uh, I guess to say that the native community is unique in those aspects, every community has its own nuances. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm creating right now with another group of folks that I'm working with a, uh, a black family preparedness handbook, very, very similar to the native book, but, but very nuanced in the way that African-American communities get information, communicate with one another. Again, as you attested to earlier, less than 24%, according to some recent studies of African-American families have done anything to prepare for a disaster. Why is that? I mean, what, is there any empirical data that backs up why specifically there's less involvement with the Africa? And I say this in the sense that globally thinking, right? I mean, where where I'm at in, in Orange County, California, you know, obviously we have a heavy Hispanic community. And then, so that's one thing with our reach outreach with, with Spanish speaking classes. But on the other hand, even the suburban and urban people living in Orange County and LA County, I think sometimes they're not prepared because they're used to having services when they pick up the phone during a regular day and call 911 and they're able to get within four to five minutes resources. And I think maybe the they feel that's going to be the same thing when a catastrophic emergency occurs. But if you take a look at like Katrina, obviously that was a, an example where what it was a, a week before we got real services out there. Uh, for 14 days, I think, of what it was at the at the end when we were able to stabilize that. Why do you think that in general, well, let's talk about the African-American community, why are they less apt to be prepared or want to do the per- I wouldn't say less apt to be prepared. I think it's more of a mindset. Why do you think they're less uh, interested in becoming prepared? Well, again, that's a great question. And one of the things that I've, I've said in, in, in various publications uh, that I've written over the past several years, and one of the things that I've learned through all of my travels in emergency management is people don't respond very well to mixed messages. Mm. And over the 15 or 16 years since since 9-11, we as emergency managers have sent mixed messages to the public. True. On the one hand, we've said, get a kit, make a plan, and be prepared. While on the other hand, we're saying, sort of in a tacit way, well, but if you don't, we'll be there to save you. Right, And so I think it's going to take a, a little bit more of an honest and blunt uh, message from the emergency management community that says uh, to communities, look, during a major disaster, there's only so many of us to go around and we're focused on the most injured and the most endangered. Uh, you're on your own and you really need to understand that you're on your own. And uh, I think as emergency managers, we've been conditioned to be reluctant to give that that negative message out uh, because we don't want to frighten people. We don't want to upset people. So what happens is people say, well, yeah, I know I need to kind of do that, but 
I'll get to it one of these days. Right. Uh, and they never get to it. And then when there's a disaster, as you say, they think they can automatically pick up the phone and call 911 and people are going to just rush in and, and, and help them. I taught a lot of surf classes in my day. And one day we're out doing out, you know, outreach at one of the fairs. And I had somebody come over to me and ask about the surf program and I explained to him what it was. And then the guy goes to me, he said, well, isn't that what I pay my taxes for, for you guys to respond to disasters? And, and it was, right. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, yeah, it's like, you know, we have one uh, police officer basically for every thousand, you know, people that, that live in the city. And you have about two firefighters for about every thousand people that live in a city. That's on the average. I mean, it could be more or less, it depends on where you're at, you know? So yeah. And, and you don't have the entire police force or fire department on on every day, you know, so when the earthquake does occur, and this is what we have in California, you know, or the big tornado comes through, it's going to be a couple of days before you can round everybody up because they're going to be taking care of their own stuff at home. People just don't, I don't think they either care to know or just don't know, or I mean, I don't, I, I don't know how to get over the apathy in general. So one of the things that I've suggested, Todd, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's so true for us as emergency managers. It's a frustration point that we've all had. I had one emergency manager tell me some years ago, he says, well, Vince, you know, you can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. (laughs) And, And I suggested to him that not only do you not have to or can you not lead the horse to water, you have to bring the water to the horse. Right. And and. And you're darn near going to have to pour it down their throat. (laughs) And what I meant by that is uh, when you're doing preparedness, we can't have this passive message. It's got to be focused on what people are doing every day. So where should the message of preparedness be? Well, it should be everywhere that people are. It should be in churches and places of worship. It should be at uh, health clinics where people go get their doctor's appointments. It should be in schools. Uh, where children bring materials home every day for their parents to read. One of my mentors and and uh, good friend, General Russell Honore, who was the uh, hero of the Hurricane Katrina rescue, once said that what happens to people in a disaster is directly related to what they were doing before the disaster. Yeah. And so what we have to do is change the paradigm of how we approach preparedness in a way that says they're not going to do it on their own because it's an extra thing that people have to do. And to be quite frank about it, all of us are busy surviving, uh, working, trying to take care of our family. So one extra thing on our plate is not going to get the attention that it needs. So what we need to do is in turn, make sure that people are inundated with preparedness information and messages all the time, wherever they are. When you get on a public bus, there should be preparedness PSAs uh, posted. When you when you go to the doctor's office, when they hand you your prescription, they should hand you a little pamphlet uh, asking you if you're prepared. Hmm. So I think if we don't start to take preparedness uh, more seriously as a society, we're headed for a catastrophe um, of the of the magnitude that is going to you know, there's going to really cost a lot of lives. You know, Hurricane Katrina should have been a wake-up call. Unfortunately, the folks in New Orleans and in the Gulf region are, by some studies, less prepared now than they were even prior to Katrina. Right. I read that. Yeah, that's amazing. Back on that, that note of, of, of the preparedness for the community, do you know who Dr. Lucy Jones is? Oh, uh, yeah, I've heard of her. She was doing this um, thing here in L.A. regarding uh, earthquake preparedness, and I, I, her and I were on a panel together and she brought up the fact that if we had a major earthquake here which you know in all sense purposes should happen any day now right because i mean just years overdue um when that occurs we're going to be cut off with water and transportation and she's talking six months at a minimum without any water here in southern california and i'm talking just drinking water i'm talking about like all water bathing water everything you know, six months. So, you know, people just, and, and, and they don't hear the message, I don't think, you know, and I know I'm right now I'm preaching to the choir, but I mean, this is the stuff that I try to get to get through to people when we talk about preparedness. And as, as an emergency manager, and this is who we're talking to in, in this podcast, it's a frustration for all of us. And I, and I guess one of the, the things I'd like to hear, and I think it's exciting what you've done with that preparedness handbook that you got is your successes that you had reaching out to those tribal populations with their preparedness and their success stories. Thank you, Todd. And, uh, you know, getting back to that, what uh, one of the things that we've done is uh, that we've partnered with not only, uh, again, National Tribal Emergency Management Council, but we've been featured since the book came out in a number of, of forums, including uh, the Tribal Leaders Conference in Las Vegas about a month ago, where we were able to get in front of tribal leadership 
and talk to them about the urgent need for preparedness and why having the handbook is important to get into the hands of families. Uh, we've had a number of successes in terms of that. Uh, we've also partnered with some uh, private sector companies. I, I can't name any of them now because there's contractual things going on right. that are still pending, but some major national companies that do business in Indian country, and they're interested in sponsoring the handbooks as a uh, as a donation to these tribal communities so that people who can't afford them will get them uh, free. That's great. So uh, we've had a lot of success in that area. We're working with uh, any and everybody who, who will talk to us. Certainly we've been before the, the FEMA uh, tribal liaisons in all of the FEMA regions. They're aware of the book. Uh, we're working on, again, some grant funding to, to help push this out to the, the Native population. And and a number of other avenues. So we've had some initial uh, success, but of course, much, much more work needs to uh, needs to be done and raise awareness. And that's why I was so so excited to get on your program and, and, and talk to your audience about the book and about the availability of the book for, uh, for, for tribal communities. Being out here in the Southwest, you know, we have a lot of tribal communities, more than you would you would think so much so just down the street from us where, you know, we have the Pachanka tribe and the Morongo tribe and some of the big ones that are that, that we hear out here, uh, they're casino, they're the casino tribes, and that's why we you know talk about them. But there's also some of the smaller ones that are around too that do have the same same issues. Hey, so we're gonna take a break here in a minute, but just to chew on this for a second, I have a question. We did talk about before when I was talking to you last week regarding the tribal communities and uh, casinos, and and you had an interesting stat on that. So hold on to that for a second. Take a break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the tribal casinos. Hi, this is Todd Devoe from Ian Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. Welcome back from the break, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our sponsors and those guys right there. They keep us running, keep our lights on, and, and keep us bringing that quality content to you. So uh, if you guys have a chance, click on to them, take a look at them, and make sure that they know that you were sent to them by us. So Vince, so before the break, we're talking about the casinos, and everybody always thinks about the Indian casinos and, and big money and, and uh, that kind of stuff, but you're telling me before that that's not quite true, right? Oh, absolutely, Todd. Uh, one of the things that I've learned in this process, and it's been a an eye opener for me as a as a person who's not, you know, a tribal member. We all have preconceived notions and, and misconceptions about everything because unless we've experienced it or gotten involved with it, we, we really don't know how things work. We just perceive what we think we see. So one of the things that I've learned through this process was some major myths about the Native community that are simply not true. Uh, one is that all of the tribes have uh, casinos and they're all very rich and they're riding around in Rolls Royces. And, and the fact of the matter is that there are some uh, 500 and so, or so casinos in operation in Native uh, communities. Only about 72 of those 500 casinos actually turn a profit. And by regulation, by federal regulation, profits that are turned from those casinos that are profitable are not distributed necessarily to the population. That is, everybody in the tribe doesn't get a check from the casino uh, for the profit. Before that happens, there's a number of rules, federal rules around how the uh, tribal money must be dispersed. They must, for example, put a certain amount of money into local projects, supporting local tribal government, uh, supporting emergency management, supporting other public health and, and other entities within the tribe. So the reality is that if there's anything left, the average tribal member that does get profits from a casino may get something like two or $3,000 a year. That's pretty much it. So the fact that, or the, the myth that all tribes uh, that have casinos are, are wealthy it's just that. It's, it's a myth. One of the other interesting things I found out, for example, was uh, the notion that, that uh, Native families uh, receive free education, college education. Simply not true. They have to apply for scholarships just like every, every other college student, and they have to qualify. And also, if they're applying for a Native scholarship, they have to actually go through a really rigorous process of proving their Native lineage before they're eligible for scholarships. So they can't just, I can't just walk in and say, I'm a Native. I've got Native blood 
because my great grandmother was a Native American, and therefore I'm entitled to, you know, apply for the, for these funds. So there's a lot of things out there that I've learned over the over the process of writing this book that have really given me a whole different perspective of, of the Native community as a whole. But one of the most important things I found out, Todd, is that the Native population has had a history, of course, throughout this country of, of a lot of things that have happened to them as a community. But they are they are committed to to survival and they're committed to one another in a way that really the rest of the American population could learn from. They know that they are vulnerable if there's a natural disaster or a human-caused disaster like the uh, Dakota Pipeline situation. And so the fabric of their culture says that they must protect the land because the land is belongs to everybody. It doesn't just belong to the tribe or or to their community. And that the natural resources like water and soil uh, need to be protected in a way that is going to allow them to to survive as a community. So they have a, a very different survival mechanism and instinct that uh, that I think the rest of uh, us as Americans can can really learn from. Yeah, I agree with you there. I know that um, that whole Standing Rock thing was a uh, was a pretty amazing to see all those tribes come together, and uh, I know that they don't all necessarily like each other, but they did stand together for for that particular cause. Well, and if you take virtually things like the like the Flint, Michigan water crisis, there was a, definitely a, a major issue and still an ongoing issue there. But conversely, you don't see any major ground swelling of involvement or engagement by communities to say, hey. Why did this happen? And we got to make sure this doesn't happen again. That's so true. We get so busy in our own lives that sometimes we we see something like Flint, Michigan, for instance, and we're over here on the West Coast, or if you're over in like Massachusetts or whatever. And it's almost like one of those things like, well, that sucks that's happening to them, but it doesn't affect me, you know, whatever, you know, and that seems to be the attitude that a lot of Americans have. It's kind of sad that we, we don't come together as a community more often to ask those questions and try to resolve some of those issues specifically with, you know, drinking water and is one of the big things for me being on the West Coast, being in California specifically. Uh, water is actually one of those issues that is always on the front of my mind, whether we're going through the drought or whether, like I said, with uh, the late, late big earthquake, the, the pipelines being broken or those issues that are that are happening. And, and it's that's one of my, we, we could talk forever for, for water, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. But yeah, no, you're right. We don't band together on, on some issues like that. Well, and certainly my time in San Diego, uh, living in San Diego with Sony brought that to my attention in a way that that most Americans have no idea uh, about what a real water crisis is. So uh, I, that was a great learning experience for me living out there and and, uh, and understanding the issues around water and water conservation. There's a town, I forget the name of it, and I'm sorry about that, but it's old in, in Central California that actually ran out of water and they were only drinking through deliveries and bottled water. That's the way they got their water. But again, it's a whole Incredible. Other, yeah, it's a whole other, other issue. Is there an issue specifically with people preparing that are in poverty? Well, a great question. Uh, in 2012, I wrote my first book. It was called Lost and Turned Out, A Guide to Preparing Underserved Community. And in that book, I related one of my first experiences, uh, Todd, on, on my very first disaster as a FEMA worker uh, in uh, Scioto County, uh, Ohio, which is in the far southern corner of Ohio next to the West Virginia border. Okay. Very, very, very poor population there. Uh, most of the people in that area living below poverty. Very uh, semi-rural community. But one of the experiences that profoundly influenced me to do this work that I'm doing in underserved communities was the fact that uh, although in the, the emergency manager down there, by the way, called called their, their area Little Appalachia because mm. the, the poverty that was there. One of the things that I learned is that disaster uh, preparedness is not about having a disaster kit or having the funds to go out and buy supplies to stockpile in your garage or in your in your in your home. Most people, when they think about disaster preparedness, think that it's something they have to buy. And really, what we need to change is the mindset that says uh, disaster preparedness is a thought process yes. or a way of thinking. It's not a a thing. You know, the message uh, from DHS from from day one has been get a kit and make a plan and be prepared. And people have largely ignored that, whether they be in urban, suburban, rural communities, whether they be upper class, middle class, or what have you. The general public is not is not resonating with that. So, so it goes back to this, to answer your question. What I learned in Scioto County was that the people there were socially connected enough to do what they had to do to survive. For example, 
the disaster was an ice storm and most of the power lines had been snapped because of the ice. And so they knew that they were going to be without power for a number of, not days, but weeks, because that was pretty routine in that area. So one of the fascinating things that they did was the community members banded together and they had already, in anticipation of the ice storms, which happened about the same time every year, gathered a bunch of dry ice so that they could distribute it out to their to their neighbors to put into their refrigerators <laughs> to keep their food from spoiling. Because once that food spoils, you're done. You right. don't have money to go out and buy food. You have to wait for FEMA or the state to come in and, and rescue you. But in the meantime, you have children there that still have to eat. Right. And so some of the things that they did that they were able to do themselves really uh, resonated with me as the true essence of preparedness. Preparedness is not a thing, and I think we have to get away from that whole idea that the commodity of having a disaster kit is going to save you. You can you can say that to the people whose houses were floating down the street in New Orleans. You know, where, where was that disaster kit when you needed it? Right. I think the preparedness message has to be making sure that people understand the risks where they live. Uh, for example, here in Chicago right now, we've got flooding going on on the this Plains River and the Fox River, and people right. are sandbagging and they're doing all these things. But the vast majority of these people know that this is going to happen every year and they still aren't prepared. So, you know, the preparedness message in what I wrote in, in Lost and Turned Out has to, has to shift from this idea that somehow if you have uh, two, two granola bars and a, and a, uh, a flashlight <laughs> packed away that you're prepared. Right. Preparedness is a mind state, and it's something you should be living, not doing. If you have to get prepared, that means you've got a problem. You should be basically living prepared. As emergency managers, preparedness is, is one of the aspects that we do, and, and I know that everybody's underfunded and, and, and overworked and understaffed, and I really truly believe that preparedness that message is, is one of our key principles as, as emergency managers that we need to be always talking about. Almost like, a, I hate to say it, but almost like those people that are uh, they used to be smokers and then they quit smoking and then they go around telling everybody how they have to quit smoking. I think that we have to be that right. right? We, we have to be that way right. with preparedness, you know, and uh, what kind of, how do we craft that message so that we're not off-putting, that we're not becoming white noise in the background and that people take us, us seriously? Great, great question, Todd. And, and I think there's four things that really need to happen in that regard. And as to why everybody's not prepared, like you say, whether it's an underserved community or an affluent community, it doesn't matter. One is we have to understand that people are apathetic because they don't understand the disaster risks. That is, they don't really focus in on the fact that in Chicago, you're subject to be hit by a tornado, even in an urban, heavily populated urban area. So we have to continually remind people about the risks where they live. Secondly, there's a lack of knowledge and understanding about the disaster process. Uh, everybody thinks that FEMA is this great agency that's got all these assets and is going to come in and save save us. When the reality that us emergency managers know is that FEMA doesn't own any assets and they are there for guidance and direction, and they're there to provide financial support to support state and local governments in a major disaster. So I think there's a process that I've gone through certainly over these years to try to demystify the disaster system as it relates to the public. People have no idea what FEMA really does and what their real role is. Right. They have no idea what the state's real role is or the county's real role is in disaster. So I think we need to do that process of demystification. And then thirdly, we need to make people understand that depending, as you said earlier in our conversation, depending on the government to come in and save you, the public safety people, is not realistic. That less than, like you say, 1% of the population is made up of first responders who are going to be doing the best they can to, to help people as they can. But in a major incident, that's not going to be uh, instantaneous. And then last, I think as emergency managers, we've been put on on, on uh a focus on recovery versus prevention. That right. is, we spent all of our assets and resources doing planning, training, and exercises to respond and to recover. But some of that energy and effort has to be rechanneled toward uh, toward the biggest issue, which is what do you do about all these people who could have done something to prepare themselves but didn't? Right. So I think those, if we focus on those four themes, you know, I was part of a think tank of people that reviewed the first drafts of the National Response Framework back in 2002. I'm in uh, Arlington, Virginia. And uh, as we were going through that doctrine, initially, surprisingly enough, there was very little in there about preparedness. 
uh, in the initial uh, natural response uh, plan. We as emergency managers thought that we should beef that up, so we, we you know, sort of sort of did some arm twisting and said, hey, we need to take this as part of the major doctrine of the four pillars of emergency management. Well, sometimes it's good to admit when, when you made a mistake, and I think the mistake that was made back in that period of time was thinking that, that emergency management, that be it FEMA and federal and state emergency management, should be responsible for preparedness, period. And why I say that is because the obvious truth to me is that we're, we're not funded to do that. It's not part of our core mission, and we struggle with it over these years, and, and it's contributed to this, this gap in the public not being prepared. And, uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, public health, for example, uh, which is probably where emergency preparedness should have been, been housed at a state and federal level uh, and at a local level, they're more equipped to do that than FEMA is because FEMA does not have a mechanism to set up and to study outcomes. Public health, for example, knows that if Johnny is not reading at a grade level by the time he's in third grade, that he stands a 78% chance of going to prison. Wow. Why do they know that? Because they study outcomes. Right. There is no mechanism set up for FEMA or Homeland Security to study disaster outcomes to understand what happens to people uh, after the disaster and therefore tailor programs to curtail that. That's not what FEMA does. Right. And that's not what Homeland Security does. And that's not what state emergency managers do. The response and recovery is our primary mission as emergency managers. And prevention and preparedness really is kind of a, an additional duty that, that frankly has not been very well well funded and, and very well thought out in terms of, of, of finding out why. If you don't find out why people aren't doing something, you're never going to be able to correct their behavior. That's so true. You know, it's funny you say that because um, the University of Delaware has their emergency management program in their sociology department, and they do a great job. I, I When I was going through school, um, undergrad and grad school, I did a lot of my research uh, through the University of Delaware. And uh, I mean, like Kathleen Tini and, and that, that Dr. Uh, Tini and th that group did some really great empirical data research on disasters. And, you know, so you're right. We, as, as emergency managers, we don't do research well. And that's something that we probably should be, be looking into. And again, that's, we, we could have a, you and I could have another and whole long conversation. That. that just simply isn't what we do. It's a true, right? It's a truth. It's not a criticism. You're right. That is right. All right, sir. Well, um, we're getting close to the, to our mark here. And before we get too, too deep into this, I'd, I'd like to ask you a couple of um, quick and easy questions. One is, now, now that you have a few books that, that you wrote and, and I would actually uh, be okay with you recommended those, but what book if would you recommend to somebody who is just starting out as an emergency manager, if day one they show up as a as the emergency manager or or in that field, emergency preparedness coordinator at some some or agency, what would you give them to say, read this and it will get you started? Well, certainly, uh, I would first give them a copy of uh, the book Unthinkable by author Amanda Ripa. She was a Time Magazine reporter who did a several year study of the survivors of the 9/11 attack. And she found out and, and, and uh, chronicled in her, in her uh, book some very, very important information about the psychology of survival and disaster. One of her major conclusions, for example, was that people who had been through some kind of drill or training uh, in their workplace at the, at the towers were the most likely to survive because they were able to get from the first stage of any disaster, which is what I call the oh shucks stage. That is, I don't believe this is happening, I don't believe it's happening now, and I don't believe it's happening to me. Right. And the people who get from that stage to stage two, which is I have to act in order to survive, are most likely to get there quicker if they've had some kind of drill or, or, or training. There was a gentleman in one of the companies in the towers uh, named Rick Rascola, who was always bugging the heck out of all of his fellow office workers about doing these evacuation drills, but uh, 90 5% of their employees survived the 9-11 attacks because they acted quickly to get out of the building uh, before things got, got out of hand. So so Amanda Ripley, I would recommend uh, The Unthinkable as a book that, that, uh, that anybody should read. There's another uh, gentleman by the name of, I believe his name is Cohen, C-O-H-E-N, but the book is called In the Wake of Disaster, and it talks about uh, the faith community and the, the role of the faith community in disaster. I would, I would certainly recommend that. I would also recommend 
my book, Boston Turned Out, A Guide to Preparing Underserved Communities, because I think it gives a little bit different perspective on, again, the historical unpreparedness and the, the idea that the folks who are most vulnerable, which is people with disabilities, elderly, people below poverty, people without their own personal transportation. Those are the folks who are going to most likely suffer and die in many cases because they're not prepared. So if we can focus some of our efforts as emergency managers on uh, preparing and and informing those populations, we can save ourselves some some grief on the other end, if you will, where we have a situation like uh, like New Orleans. So those are a couple of the books that I would that I would suggest that are out there. The other one that I think everybody should have, every person who owns a home or even lives in an apartment is The Red Guide to Disaster Recovery Mm. by Sean Scott, uh, because it not only tells uh, uh, individuals and homeowners what they need to look out for in the recovery process, but it helps people prepare for recovery. A recovery doesn't happen after the fire trucks leave and the emergency management uh, folks are gone and and the tape you know, the yellow tape is gone. There's this whole process of recovery that is devastating for most people. Right, right. And Sean Scott does a great job of of, uh, uh, of of characterizing those things that people need to look out for, but also informing emergency managers uh, of some of the, uh, the things that are that are that are obstacles to recovery and some solutions for. Uh, uh, for preparing for recovery. Yeah, that's actually a really good one. I mean, most people don't even understand the recovery process and, and that it's not necessarily that the federal government's going to come and write a check to you. And there's a, yeah, that's a, it's a whole nother ball <laughs> of wax. All right. So next question, how do we get a hold of you if anybody here wants to buy your books or, you know, email you or, or get in touch, in, in touch with your uh, consulting company? Sure. So uh, if you would like to uh, get a hold of me, there's a couple of ways. Uh, my company is Preparedness Matters Disaster Consulting. You can reach that at, uh, on the web at www.preparednessmatters.net. That's my uh, website, and there's a plethora of information on there about programs, about uh, training. I do workshops. I do uh, community uh, organizational things uh, all over the country. So lots of information on there about how you can engage me to do, uh, again, uh, you know, work with you and your community to, to help you further your, your preparedness goals. Uh, the other website is the Native Family Disaster Handbook website. And that website is uh, www.thenativedisaster, excuse me, the Native Family Disaster Handbook com the native family disaster handbook.com there you can purchase the book you can find out more information about the handbook project you can become a sponsor so there's lots of information on there about how you can support native communities uh, uh, in disasters and then um, and then last but not least my uh, email is Vincent at B as in boy at Davis at outlook.com. And my phone number, if you want to call me directly, is area code 760-916-4328. Oh, great. And and for everybody who uh, wasn't able to write this down, if you come back and take a look at the at the show notes, that information will definitely be in there as well. So, Vince, thank you so much for, for being here today. And, and this was a great talk. I'd uh, love to have you back on sometime. Well, I'd love to be back on time. And thank you very much for, uh, for having me. And thank you all the great work that you're doing uh, in, in uh, EM Weekly and uh, like I said uh, honored and privileged to, uh, to be a part of it.